in the gospel as given in Galatians seems at odds at times. Paul has emphasized more than once that you are no longer under the law, but you are now under grace, under the law. And now, by the gospel, we have to understand that is speaking of our relationship with God. The fact that we have been forgiven of our sins, which we came to know our sins by the law, and we disobeyed the law, and that, and through Jesus, he died on the cross for our sins, so that when we place our tr trust in him, he comes into our lives to not only forgive our, uh, uh, our sins, but to come into us and give us new life. That's the gospel. So, our, so is the law and the gospel at odds? Because it sure seems to be uh, there's some tension in this book. And today I want to ask this question, how does the law apply to our lives for those of us who live under grace, who've been saved by the gospel? Now that's a difficult question, I'll admit. It's a question that I've wrestled with for a long time as a follower of Jesus. I've studied the Bible a lot on this, and I've come to the conclusion that there actually is an answer that not only helps us to read the Bible and all of the parts of the Bible, but there, there is an answer to that question that can transform how we live our everyday lives as followers of Jesus who have a relationship with God. One of the best places to help us understand how the law applies to our lives now is in Galatians chapter 3. So I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 23 through chapter 4, verse 7. And uh, the, what we're wrestling with is, where does the law fit into our lives? Is it on the front burner, where it's burning hot, it's central to our faith? Or do we switch it to the back burner, it's there, but we kind of ignore it, it's not really that important, or do we take it off the stove altogether? Let's see what, uh, what, Jesus, what God has to say in Galatians chapter 3 verses 23 through 4-7. It says, before, coming, before the coming of this faith, namely the faith in Jesus, before we, before we came to faith in Jesus, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until, faith, until the faith that had come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in other words, we are no longer under the law. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental forces, spiritual forces of the world. 
But when the, time, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent, his, sent the spirit of his sons into our hearts. The spirit who cries out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would come now and you would open up this, this passage to us. God, I, we know that you are the teacher, that you are the one who reveals truth. And your word is life. It is true. It, is, it brings life. And we pray that now you would come and speak to us. This might, might land differently on different people's ears that are here in this room. I pray that your spirit would do the work and that you would have your way, that you would, uh, that you would speak to us uh, what you would have for us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you ever have a babysitter when you were a kid? Did mom and dad ever get a, a babysitter so they could have a night out on the town? Uh, my parents had a hard time getting a babysitter because the Winnell kids had a reputation. Uh, if they came once, they were not coming back a second time. And I don't know why we were so hard on babysitters. Uh, I don't think we were trying to be mean. We were, just really, we were just really immature kids, I guess. I remember one time my brother and I climbed up on the roof of the house just to run around and dance, just to freak out the babysitter. We had no other reason to be there other than to get a, get a rise out of her. And she's down on the ground. Please come down. Please come down. You're going to break your necks. And, uh, and we had her almost in tears. Another babysitter. Believe me, it wasn't the same one. A second babysitter. We somehow tricked some time to... Uh, where we ran out the door and we, and we got her outside and then we ran back in and we locked the door. Go around pounding on the windows. Nah, 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 nah. She can't get inside. And I don't know why we thought that was funny, but it was hilarious to us as little kids. Now, what in the world does all that have to do with this, this passage? Well, it does apply. In fact, these crazy stories, I think, actually help us to understand the purpose of the law. The law, in a sense, is a babysitter. Verse 24 says, So the law was our guardian until Christ came. The word guardian here is a Greek word, patagogos, which was like a babysitter. Only a little bit more. A patagogos in ancient times was a slave that would be put in charge of children until they matured. Now, that, now this patagogos would be over elementary age kids to take them to school and to bring them home and to make sure that they were safe and they were taken care of. And it's a really interesting word, a word that we don't quite have an English equivalent to today. Babysitter comes kind of close but all these translations translate this one word differently. For example, in the NIV that I uh, read this morning, it's translated as a guardian. And uh, in just all of these all at once, I'm, I'm going to just go through them. Uh, in the King James Version, it's translated as a schoolmaster. In the New Revised uh, Version, it's translated as a disciplinarian. In the Message, a tutor. In the Living Bible, 
a teacher or guide. In the Phillips translation, it says a strict governess. In other words, this person had broad responsibilities. They were to take care of the kids and, and, uh, and until they reached maturity. The Patagogos had three main responsibilities. One is that they were to protect the children. Make sure that they got, home, got to school and home safely, that they wouldn't get in trouble, that they wouldn't get harmed. Uh, to, they were to protect the children. The second thing is they were to discipline the children. In other words, teach, teach them right from wrong. When they messed up, discipline them, punish them, so that they would learn what was wrong. And then thirdly, they were to train them to have good manners and to, to do Uh, to have self-control and to do the things that they are supposed to do. Now, when you look at that list, those three things, that's the role of the law for a follower of God. The role of the law is to protect us so that we don't do things that would harm us or harm our families or harm our communities. It gives us uh, guidance for, for good behavior to protect us. It also disciplines us. The law is the primary reason, uh, the primary way that we know what's wrong. It teaches us right from wrong. God says, don't do this, do do this. It disciplines us, and then it trains us. It trains us to become, become the type of people that will do the right things. That's the, that's, the role of the, that's the role of the law for followers of God. But here's the interesting thing. When Paul goes through this, he goes on to say, we are no longer under a patagogos. We are no longer under the law. That somehow time has reached its maturity through the coming of Jesus. So that, central to our faith, is no longer the law that we are, that, that is the defining characteristic, the co- defining aspect to our faith. Under, under the gospel of grace, the defining characteristic of our life is our relationship with Jesus, right? That's the gospel of grace. That is the good uh, news that we have. And it's so important that we understand this. It's absolutely crucial that you have made that decision to ask Jesus to come into your life. And some of you here this morning, and maybe you've heard this before, maybe you've never heard this before, but you know deep down in your heart, or maybe God will prick you right now to let you know that you haven't made that decision yet, that you haven't received Jesus. It's the most important thing that you could ever do to ask God to come into your life and to forgive your sins and ask him to be central in your life, to live for him, that he is your Savior and your Lord. The gospel of grace is described here in this passage in 4.4. It says, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. When we talk about uh, being redeemed, it's talking about having our sins forgiven. And now we've brought into his family, we're adopted uh, uh, as sons and daughters of his. And it's a beautiful relationship. It's a beautiful picture of a relationship that we can have with God. Now that relationship is is described even further in verse 26 of chapter 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. That's the gospel, right? You are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have 
clothed yourself, yourselves with Christ. In a couple weeks, we're going to have some baptisms. And people will come up in this baptismal tank and they will get dunked underwater and uh, they will get all immersed. And what, it does, what, what that is is a symbol of what has happened in their life, that they've been immersed with Jesus. It talks about here that we have been immersed into Christ and have, been clo- and have clothed ourselves with Christ. What's clothing? Something you, you, you have on the outside of you that, so that you, you can recognize on a person. When others see you, if you have been baptized into Christ, if you've been immersed in him, what they're going to see is they're going to see Jesus all over you. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. And then it goes on to say, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What that verse means is that we are all equal before Jesus in his kingdom. And as as we are all equal together, that means we all have maximum value, maximum dignity. There's not one person that God would look upon and say, now that person's really valuable and that person is kind of valuable. No, what this is saying is we are all one in Christ Jesus. In God's eyes, you're a 10 out of 10. You're the apple of his eye. That's what it means that you are a child of God. He could not love you anymore. And that that doesn't matter. and, and and, And your background, your experiences, your education, your social standing, none of that matters in God's eyes. You are of a utmost value. Paul says there's no difference between uh, Jew and Gentile. The first century reader would have heard that and just about fell off his chair. What do you mean? See, that'd be a radical idea. The Jews had always been told that they were God's special people. And now Jesus is coming and he's presenting a different kingdom. He's saying, in in my kingdom, the Jews and the Gentiles are both uh, of utmost value in my kingdom. The same with the slave and the free person. Again, it's mind-blowing. The, slave, the, the free person's up here and the slave's automatically down here, right? And God's people gather together and the slave and the free person are treated as equal. And it's a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God. Male and female. I don't know if that one strikes us with the same, uh, with the same sense of, of ex- how extreme it really is as it would have in the first century. The woman had no rights. If she was not married, she didn't have a way of providing for herself. She could not give testimony in the court of law if she was harmed. Women were considered the second-class citizens, and and God says, not in my kingdom. In Jesus' kingdom, all are raised up and of full value. If anyone ever tells you that Christianity is oppressive and it holds people down, they have no idea what they're talking about. The kingdom of God is radical like that. It lifts us all up, no matter race, no matter social standing, no matter gender. We are all equal before God. This is the picture of the kingdom of God. This is a picture of our relationship with God, that you are a child of God, and he is your father. And it's a beautiful thing. Now, if Jesus is our Lord and our relationship with him changes everything, how does that apply then to those commandments that were given before the coming of Jesus? 
before time had reached its fulfillment. Well, let's go back to the teaching that, Je that Jesus gives that is the clearest picture of what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like, namely the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verses 17 through 19, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Oh boy, here we go. Uh, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The first way that Jesus fulfills the law is he lives a perfect life, sinless, never disobeys the law. And then, he's, and then he goes on to say, for, I, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear. So in other words, not just what happened on the cross, but now what will happen until the end of history, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Everything is accomplished, first of all, through Jesus, and then secondly, through Jesus in us. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. We're talking about the kingdom of heaven. Anyone that sets it aside or teaches others to set it aside, that, that, that's low in God's kingdom values. But, it, but whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You see, as the law is fulfilled in Jesus, it does have an application to our lives. None of it is not even a, the smallest little dot of the eye, not the least stroke of the pen, it says here, passes away. But it has to apply to our lives differently than it did before the coming of Jesus. But let me just pause here as we talk about how does it apply to our lives now. Let us just pause and recognize the good values of the patagogos. The law, there, there is still good in that it still protects us and it still disciplines us and it still trains us. It, it, it helps, it molds us and makes us, it trains us in the sense that it molds us and makes us to become more like Jesus. So all of a sudden, under, the, under Jesus, under the gospel, in the kingdom of God, the law is not our way, it's not the central aspect of our lives to earn our salvation or the central aspect of our religion. The law is transformed to become a way for us to be trained to become more like Jesus. Now, when, now in our household, dinner time is uh, a is a pull and a push because there's vegetables on the plate. <laughs> and uh, we have the same conversation basically every night. Now, most I, I'm sure there's exceptions to the rules. I'm sure there's a kid out there that loves asparagus, but he or she does not live in my house. In fact, I, I don't know if I've met that kid yet. And... Uh, uh, and every night, the conversation is the same. Do I have to eat any more of these green beans? Yes, three more bites. I don't want to eat three more bites. You don't get dessert after dinner if you don't eat three more bites. And if I had a dollar for every time that something like this was said, I wouldn't take a salary next year because <laughs> I'd be a rich man. Uh, but you know what? I was the same way when I was a kid. 
And now I will gladly eat a salad because I've learned that salads really don't taste that bad and they're good for me. And I figured out that vegetable stir fry can be mighty tasty. And, and what it is, is that over time there has been some, what I would say is maturity. As we grow up, one, our taste buds begin to change, right? We begin to like new things. And two, our attitude begins to change. We recognize I need this because it's good for me. It's healthy. No longer does my mom look over my, sermon, or, or over my shoulder and say, three more bites. Now I gladly eat my vegetables. And the same thing is true of the law. It doesn't apply to us in that it is a heavy burden hanging over our shoulders. We now begin to recognize that there are some good aspects here. As Paul said in Romans 7, the law is holy, righteous, and good. The commandments are holy, righteous, and good. They guide us into truth. In fact, as we grow in our faith, in our relationship with Jesus, our taste buds begin to change. We actually enjoy obeying God. And our attitudes begin to change because we actually believe that this is for our good. You see, we are maturing in our faith. And so we talk about the law. Where does it fit on the stove? Is it on the front burner? Is it on the back burner? Or do we take it all off the stove altogether? What I would say is it's, it's not even a pot anymore. Now it's a, now it's a spatula. It's a tool for the Holy Spirit to use, to mold us and to shape us to become more like his son, Jesus. I quoted the verse a minute ago, but I didn't quite get it exactly right off memory, so let me say it one more time because it's so good. Romans 7:12 says, So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. When, God, when the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts, which is what Romans, or I mean what uh, Galatians 3 says here, when we're adopted into it as sons and daughters, the Spirit of His Son comes to live in us. Ezekiel tells us in the Old Testament that when the Spirit comes, He will write the law on our hearts. In other words, He'll, he'll change our desires. He'll make us new people. And as Paul and as Jesus goes on in the Sermon on the Mount, that's the those are the illustrations that he gives. You have heard it said, you shall not murder. I tell you, do not even be angry with your brother or your sister. In other words, the law is written on your heart. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, do not even look at a woman lustfully. Again, it's written on our hearts. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. You see, God comes and he moves his spirit inside of us so that we react differently to the commandments. Not a heavy burden for us to bear, but a joy and a delight for us to obey because it helps us to grow in our faith. It's a radical way of seeing things differently. Now, the, now I say seeing things differently because I think that... In our world today, there's a formula that most people operate by when they think of the law and the commandments. Here's basically the formula that we, that we normally see. If we are no longer under the law, as we are seeing here, then I will do what I want and believe what I want. And B, if I'm wrong, God's going to forgive me anyway. 
And that's what I would say most people live by today. Most people think, I'm a Christian. I still call myself a Christian, but if I don't like what the Bible says, ah, forget it. I'll believe what I want. I'll do what I want. I'll form my own spirituality. And hey, if I'm wrong, God's going to forgive me anyway, right? As long as I get into heaven one day. That's like 90% of religion in America today. And, and, there, and it's kind of appealing because we get to do what we want. And we still get to go to heaven one day. There's something that seems kind of oddly attractive about this formula, but there's a fundamental flaw with this. The fundamental flaw is it, it, it abolishes the most foundational aspect of the gospel, which is an active relationship with Jesus. There's no active relationship with Jesus here. Jesus isn't central. I'm central. I decide what I want to do and believe what I want. What I, what I want. It's no idea that I want to live with Jesus on a daily basis. All it is is if I get into heaven someday. And God has so much more for us. He wants us to be his children. He wants us to live in this intimate love relationship with him. We push Jesus to the side like he's a friend that we've gotten annoyed with. We don't want him completely out of our lives, but we don't actually want him to have any meaningful impact in our lives. Just kind of remain off to the side. You see, people are, are, are spurning the church and spurning religion and all of these things because they want to get away from quote-unquote dead religion. I'll tell you what dead religion is. That was dead religion where there's no actual relationship with God. What we're looking at here in the Bible and what we teach at West Covina Christian Church and hopefully what we live in our daily lives is not dead religion. It's an alive relationship with God. And we take any means that we can, any tools, any spatulas at our disposal to cultivate our relationship with God so that we can be as close to him and as like him as we can because we love him. And we love him because he first loved us. And that's the gospel. And that's how we live with the law, not under the law, but with the law. It's a relationship with him. You see, if we settle for this, it's like 1% of all that God has for us. It's like going to an all-you-can-eat buffet and, uh, with all the foods that you love. Everything that you love, it's on the buffet table, and you sit down and you say, I'll have a plate and a napkin, and you never actually get up and get any food. Settle for the minimum. A plate and a napkin? How silly is that? And how silly it would be if we continue to, to live a, a relationship with Jesus and we don't cultivate everything that we can, if we don't grow into maturity. At the heart of our faith, at the heart of it, central to it is not the law, but it is our relationship with God. And we are his children and he is our Abba father. Galatians 4, 6 says, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. And the spirit, the spirit who cries out, Abba, father, so you are no longer a slave, but you are God's child. I've learned to love this title, Abba. It's the same, type, it's the same title that you'd hear a, a, a child call his or her father in an Aramaic-speaking world today. It's Abba. It's a, it's a word of endearment. 
It's a word of intimacy. It's a, it's a word of love and safety. Abba. This kind of sounds like the, the word that we would use in, in English today, like for daddy, like dada, papa, abba. That's the kind of uh, word that a child would use as he climbs up into his, in his daddy's lap. It's a, it's, a, it's a word that communicates the loving presence of God. Psalm 120, or 131, I think, communicates a similar idea. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. I have, I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. You know, uh, a, a child who is, uh, who is weaned is able to sit calmly in, in his mother's lap. Now, uh, Shizuka and Paul have their baby over here, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, but my, but, but my experience is a child who's not weaned is, is squirmy in his mother's lap, right? Because they're trying to constantly find the mother's breast because they're hungry, they want to eat. But when the child has been weaned, then all of a sudden they're able to sit there and just simply enjoy the presence of, of, of their mom because they're not seeking to get something out of it. It is just seeking to rest in his presence. And when God is our Abba Father, we come and we rest in his presence. We don't concern ourselves with things too mighty for us, but rather we learn to, to just sit in his lap and to feel his presence, to feel his peace. He says, uh, this passage says, Israel, hope in the Lord, <coughs> excuse me, both now and forevermore. And in God's Abba presence, there is hope, there is peace, there is joy. It is when our souls find their rest so that we live into the commandments of God, not in that we are seeking to dig in our heels and say, this is something I got to do. Now it is life-giving. This is something I get to do because I walk in fellowship with the Almighty, that God is my Father, my Abba Father, and I rest in Him and I hold hands in His presence because uh, all my sins are forgiven. And I long to be like him. That's what it means to have a relationship with God. And everything else falls into place after that. In fact, let's just go before the Lord now in the quietness of our sanctuary and, and pause that we might be able to spend just a moment in the presence of our Abba. Abba, Father, we come before you now. And our hearts are not proud and our eyes are not haughty. We put aside all those things that are too great for us, too wonderful for us to comprehend. And we simply rest in your presence. Like a weaned child, we are content. God, for each person here that comes this morning with concerns and anxieties, sorrows that weigh in their hearts, God, we just, we lay them off to the side as we sit in your lap. We're thankful that we are adopted as sons. We didn't earn that relationship. We couldn't earn it. The law is clear. We've messed up. 
But God, we're adopted as your children simply because you love us so much. And so, God, we thank you that you are our Abba. And we pray that you would help us this week to live in obedience to you. Not because we have to, but because we get to. We are your children, and you are our Abba. And that's the most precious, wonderful relationship that we could ever have. We are thankful for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.